when we return again this afternoon to 17th century England for our lecture because sadly it was a time rife with crushing persecution. In one of history's greatest contrasts, it would seem it was a period of profligacy in the state as exemplified in the nearly century-long reign of a succession of Stuart monarchs set against the brightest era, perhaps, of doctrinal and practical theological flowering in those men called the Puritans in all of Europe's centuries of separate existence since the fall of Rome. Yet, as we noted in our previous lecture, even these men, the Puritans, were captives of what one writer has called an arrested development in the principles of religious liberty. That same writer said of them, quote, for weight of personal character, scholarship, and ability, they have never been surpassed, if ever equaled. But they did not understand liberty of conscience. I emphasize this point again because it should never be forgotten that our spiritual forefathers, our Baptist forefathers, suffered at the hands of prelates and presbyters alike. Or as John Milton in his inimitable verse so aptly wrote, new presbyter is old priest writ large. Some, such as John Owen or Jeremiah Burroughs, approached nearer the ideal, but could never set their feet quite firmly upon it. And why? Because, most simply, they were bound by the error that forms the backdrop for today's study. The deception of infant church membership through infant baptism. Or, as the 19th century Baptist George Ive explained, quote, they ascribe to it, that is, infinite sprinkling, they ascribe to it some mysterious efficacy, some hidden and magical power by which it influences the spiritual state of its recipients and brings them under moral relations different from those of others. And thus, he said, it always appears in connection with baptismal regeneration, infant church membership, and sacramental holiness, unquote. Never then, never forget that this principle, a professedly regenerate church membership, virtually defines our uniqueness as Baptists, 
and our adherence to the biblical description of Christ's church. Relax or relinquish that principle in any way and you have utterly surrendered the field to pedo-baptism in whatever garb it wears. Or if I may, in the words of Dr. Baldwin, you are guilty of laying the foundation for a graceless church and would leave no other difference between that and the world than what consists merely in name and external form. In a day and an hour that much of what calls itself Baptist has in practice wholly abandoned this principle, this distinctive, our studies are no mere academic exercise. Thus, I hope that these biographical sketches, as we go further, serve as far more than historical curiosity that they are, I trust, the exhortations of your spiritual ancestors to walk faithfully in their footsteps. Especially, especially should your path be laid through suffering for your fidelity to those principles as their path so often was. So then to our subject for today. His was a life very different from that of our first study, Thomas DeLon. And yet they did share this. For having held steadfastly to Christ's ordinance in Christ's appointed way for the purity of Christ's church, they were despised by high churchmen and even zealous reformers alike. Delon's persecution was, if you will, a single event, though protracted over more than a year. This man's persecutions were many, were often lengthy, and quite varied in their forms. Delon died in prison as a result of hatred and indifference. This man, altogether different, died in a ripe old age. But having received a full measure over many years of what the inspired writer described as trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. This man's friend, that famous, famous English Baptist, William Kiffin, denominated him, quote, that ancient and faithful servant of God, unquote, who he said labored in the work of Christ above 60 years, labored without fainting under all the discouragements that attended him, contented in all conditions, under all persecutions and sufferings, so that he might therein serve his blessed Lord and Savior. Our subject 
today is that old disciple of Jesus, Hansard Moles. You will note that his name orthographically has been standardized to be spelled K-N-O-L-L-Y-S, but it is pronounced Knowles. Born in 1598, his life spanned nearly the entire 17th century. He could recall in the days of his youth the final years of Elizabeth Tudor's reign. But then he lived to see the House of Stuart in the person of James II dethroned and a new order established with the coronation of William and Mary three years before his death. Thomas DeLon and Hansard Knowles were twin exemplars, if you will, of the experience of Baptists generally throughout this entire period. Some, like DeLon, were cut off in one act of violence, while others, like Knowles, were the objects of repeated assaults over many decades of quiet and faithful obedience to Christ. Knowles was born into a decidedly Anglican family. His father was an ordained minister in the very parish where his son was born. He was, with his brother, provided a liberal education by both tutors and in the local free school. He then graduated Cambridge University and was ordained first on June 29th 1629 as a deacon and the day following as a priest in the Anglican church. By August of that same year he was settled as the vicar of the parish next over to where his father was rector. There he served for four years in what by all accounts was a very earnest ministry but by his own account barren utterly of any evidence of conversion among his hearers. Uh, but there was fruit ripening, even in that period. Fruit ripening in his own soul. For you see, he was, during his time at Cambridge, at Catherine Hall. Catherine Hall was where that heavenly doctor, Master Richard Sibbs, was head of the school. And the sermons that a long succession of Puritans preached there during his tenure, and the increasing conviction of sin that lay heavy upon his heart led him in only two years to the conclusion that many things concerning the worship of the established church were by his own telling, quote, sinful, unquote. He resigned from his vicarage after two years, but continued to preach as a lecturer so that he would not be bound to officiate according to the Book of Common Prayer. Two more years and his convictions continuing to increase. He was convinced that his very ordination received at the hands of the bishop 
was again in his words, not right. Thereupon, he wrote four decades later, thereupon I renounced that ordination and silenced myself, resolving not to preach anymore until I had a clear call and commission from Christ to preach the gospel. He betook himself to weeks of fasting and prayer. At last he was providentially led to a Mr. Wheelwright, a minister, a Puritan, and one who had, unlike Knowles, been forcibly silenced by the united hands of church and state for his very nonconformity. I give you some of Knowles' own account in his autobiography of his interviews with Mr. Wheelwright, who was very much like Bunyan's pastor John Gifford, a living epitome of Mr. Evangelist. Knowles says of him during his first interview, after he had asked me many things about the work of God upon my soul, and I had told him, he said, I could not glorify God neither in the ministry nor in any other way or work. For I was building my soul upon a covenant of works and was an utter stranger to the covenant of grace. Then, he says, Mr. Wheelwright opened to me the nature of the covenant of grace. Which I confessed to him I was a stranger to in a great measure having been only under legal convictions and a spirit of bondage. And though I had some discoveries of my one of Christ, yet I had sought righteousness, as it were, by the works of the law, and got my peace by performing duties, and rested on them. Mr. Wheelwright then desired me to consider what he had said to me, and to return to him, two or three days after. So I left him at that time and went home exceeding sorrowful about my soul's condition. But I gave myself to prayer and begged God to teach me the covenant of grace. And to that end, I searched the scriptures. Then, he says, then I began to see a necessity of believing in Christ for pardon and salvation. The next day, the next day, I locked myself in the church and in the chancel or choir, so-called, I prayed very earnestly, mourning and bemoaning myself and my soul's condition fearing and with great brokenness of spirit and many tears expressed my fears that God would leave me and forsake me and then I should utterly perish for him. <clears throat> the next day, the second day, I went again to Mr. Wheelwright and told him what God had done for my soul who said... <laughs> who said unto me, Now you are somewhat
prepared to preach Jesus Christ and the gospel of free grace to others. Having been taught it of God and having learned and heard Jesus Christ yourself. And he advised me to wait still upon God in prayer. And Christ would appear again to me by his Holy Spirit in his word and show me and teach me how to preach. It was in that locked building that the Lord the Spirit opened the gospel promises to his soul. And Knowles found rest in Christ. He said of that hour, the application of the promises filled my soul with joy and peace in believing so that I break forth into praises and thanksgiving. This he did. And in the course of time, the Holy Spirit, being his instructor in the word, as he described it, thus I was taught of God to preach the doctrine of free grace according to the tenor of the new and everlasting covenant. He returned once more to Mr. Wheelwright. I went, he said, and told all this to Mr. Wheelwright, who now said, Now, my beloved brother and fellow laborer, in the gospel of the grace of God, Christ hath given you authority, a call, and a commission to preach. I pray you, be humble and holy and delay not to do your master's work. As a brief aside, should you desire to know more of this Mr. Wheelwright, he was none other than John Wheelwright, later of New England. And he was the brother-in-law to one Anne Hutchinson. You may look that up in your spare time. <coughs> Having experienced an effectual call of grace and now a confirmation of his calling to the ministry for four years, he labored among the people of three towns north of Boston in Old England. Ere long, under Wheelwright's instruction and the maturing of his own convictions, he became fully and openly a nonconformist, a sectary, unquote, as the churchmen bitterly referred to them. But this was also the hour of Archbishop William Laud's power. And the same Laud whose ecclesiastical enactments drove John Owen from Oxford also cast its shadow across the path of Mr. Knowles. Thus began a lifetime, literally, of oppression, imprisonments, banishments, so that he might well say with the Apostle Paul, in prisons more frequent, once I was stoned, in journeyings often, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, 
and painfulness. These were all descriptive of Noel's experience. Yet, yet, while others, as Delon, while others of the Lord's saints were poured out as drink offerings, God was pleased in every circumstance of his persecution to deliver ultimately Mr. Knowles from his tormentors. As early as 1636, Knowles' preaching, but of course especially his nonconformity, drew the attention of the Court of High Commission. And innocuous enough sounding appellation, but it was England's highest ecclesiastical court, and a court like its sister court, the Star Chamber. It was a body both swift and severe in its judgments, and from which there was no appeal. Knowles wrote, About the year 1636, I was persecuted and prosecuted in the High Commission Court by virtue of a warrant wherewith I was apprehended in Boston and kept a prisoner in the man's house who served the warrant upon me. He records, though, that after speaking a while to his jailer of eternal things, the man, quote, was so greatly terrified in his conscience that he set open the doors and let me go away. He fled to London, hoping perhaps to escape notice among the teeming masses of that city. But informants, of course, were everywhere in that day. And he determined ultimately to seek refuge in America. He left in 1638. The twelve-week voyage only added to his suffering due to the death of his youngest child while aboard ship. Sadly, he found New Boston no more tolerant than Old Boston. Rumors of his being an antinomian had preceded him there, and only weeks after his arrival, the local magistrates, flanked, of course, by the congregational ministers who had but 18 years previous knelt at Plymouth in thanksgiving for religious freedom, ordered him to depart out of their coast. Amen. With his family, he moved north far north, to Dover, New Hampshire, where he established a church. But troubles from the Congregationalists there forced him to leave, along with many of the church's membership. They hoped that New York, specifically Long Island, might offer some shelter. They were turned away from there as well. Despairing of finding quietness in the new world, he wrote to his father, who then wrote back urging him to return to England, which he did in 1641. It was from this period that Knowles was henceforth known not only as sectary, but as Anabaptist. 
as one biographer put it, of all the names, the most hated, dreaded, and maligned. He returned to England virtually penniless, with but sixpence in his hand after paying for temporary lodging. His home and Cambridge education, however, afforded him the opportunity of opening a school to provide for his family. And the turmoil of the times, for you will remember the date, that this period was the period of the English Civil War. King versus Parliament. The turmoil of the times providentially distracted, at least temporarily, the churchmen from their interdictions of those pestiferous sectaries. He set about as a man in haste to preach anywhere, everywhere, opportunity afforded. In towns, in cities, among the soldiers of Parliament's army, in parish church buildings, in the open air. Nor did he avoid the center of controversy between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists. Again, his biographer observed, Knowles saw clearly that infant baptism, so-called, was the root of many of the most soul-destroying errors of the times. He saw clearly that it is not in the word of God nor according to it, but is a contradiction of that word, that baptism as Christ appointed it must be preceded by faith. And that it is thus a standing and perpetual declaration of the separateness of the church from the world. He saw that as practiced in England, it was a mingling of believers and unbelievers in the same society. And thereby the unspiritualizing of the church. The real difference between him and Pado-Baptist was not one about a quantity of water, as it is sometimes put, but about this vital question. Who are fit to make a Christian profession? The plea of, quote, non-essential, unquote, was nothing to him. Christ gave his disciples no commands which he did not mean them to obey. Thus, he preached it and engaged in public debate with some of the leading Pado-Baptists of his day. Thus, he suffered for those principles. Nor did he fare any better under Presbyterian rule but all things considered, perhaps even worse. After preaching for months to the common soldiers in Parliament's army, Knowles returned to London. But his preaching at St. Mary LeBeau, perhaps the third most prominent cathedral of London after St. Paul's and St. Bride's, earned for him the ire of no less august a body than the Westminster Assembly. 
for this was now 1644. His text when he preached there had led him to refer to the ordinance of baptism. And he took occasion, oh dear Mr. Knowles, he took occasion to point out that infant baptism has no place in the New Testament. This gave, he said, this gave serious offense to some in the congregation. And a complaint was lodged against him in Parliament, no less. Oh, he was arrested, taken to jail, and held without bail until his examination by the church court. He recorded the incident in his autobiography. Quote, the chairman of the committee, Mr. White, asked me, who gave me authority to preach? I told him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he asked me if I were a minister. I answered, I was made a priest, but I had renounced that ordination and did here again renounce the same. They asked me by what authority I preached at Bow Church. I told them, after I had refused the desire of the church wardens three times, one day after another, their want of supply and earnestness prevailed with me, and I went thither. They opened the pulpit door, and I went up and preached. He says, then I gave them, that is the committee, I gave them such an account of that sermon, and in parentheses he has this note, 30 ministers of the assembly of divines, then so called, being present, close parentheses, that they could not gainsay, but bade me withdraw and said nothing unto me. Nor would my jailer take any charge of me, for the committee had called him in and did chide him and threatened to turn him out of his place for keeping me prisoner so many days. So I went away without any blame or paying of any fees. But this, this was only the first of repeated persecutions during the Commonwealth. Many of them direct from the hands of the Assembly's most honored members. Not long after this incident for preaching in Suffolk, he was again arrested and brought before the committee for having, quote, occasioned a great disturbance to ministers and people, unquote. As in every previous incident, the Lord meant it for good, and after the committee's report to the House of Commons, order was given that he might preach anywhere in Suffolk that the settled minister was not able to preach. For his most famous sermon, titled Christ Exalted, from the text of Colossians 3 and verse 11, which you'll remember 
reads thus, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And from that urged the necessity of the holiness of the people of God's church. For that sermon, he was rewarded handsomely by being stoned out of the pulpit. Prosecuted at the privy sessions, fetched out of the country 60 miles up to London, and was constrained to bring up four or five witnesses of good repute and credit to prove and vindicate myself from false accusation. He in turn rewarded the assembly by dedicating the sermon at its printing to the Honorable Committee of Examinations. Mr. Knowles had sense of humor, if nothing else. Shortly after this, he was again summoned before a committee of the assembly. Of the assembly, they were quite busy, were they not, summoning ministers to examine them. Accused of preaching without holy orders, to which he said, "To which I answered that I was in holy orders, that I was ordained in a church of God according to the order of the gospel of Christ." The manner whereof I then declared to the committee before Mr. Nye, that would be Philip Nye, the independent Puritan, and other ministers there present, including significantly Edmund Kelly. You will perhaps remember that name from our study of Mr. DeLon, the father of Benjamin Kelly, the persecutor. Thomas Lawn, including Edmund Calamy. At last, the committee, by their chairman, commanded me to preach no more. I told them I would preach the gospel both publicly and from house to house. For it was more equal to obey Christ who had commanded me than to, than them who forbid me. And so I went away and ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was part of the constitution of a church of baptized believers about 1643 when he became their pastor. But the church was forced to relocate twice due to opposition from the nearby established churches complaining that they had the temerity to hold services at the exact time that they were holding services. How rude. A public debate was scheduled with that same Edmund Calumet and others at which Mr. Knowles, Mr. Kiffin, and Mr. Benjamin Cox were to take the opposition on the subject of infant baptism. But at the last moment, it was canceled 
by no less a person than the Lord Mayor of London. For you see, he feared, according to rumors, that violence would be perpetrated by the Baptists. Although the only violence ever done to that hour had issued from those in power, whether as bishops or synods. The restoration of the monarchy in 1660 proved little better for the Baptists or for Knowles. In another parallel to our previous lecture, Knowles and 400 other ministers were arrested and imprisoned at Newgate. Where Mr. DeLong's life ended little more than two decades later. They were imprisoned for 18 weeks. Suspected, he wrote, suspected because we refused to take the oath of allegiance and supremacy. They were all released in an act of great clemency due to the king's coronation. Upon his release and seeing the times, he fled once more. Not to America, of course. He had enjoyed their hospitality already. He fled this time to Holland and then ultimately to Germany, where they remained for three years during which time good King Charles, first by law and failing of that by force of arms, by a band of soldiers seized and appropriated Noel's house, his property, and all of his money. Thus, upon his return to England, he was once again destitute. And at the age of 65, once more opened a school for the support of his family. Only two years elapsed, and then came the devastation of the Black Death to London, 1665. Knowles was one of a few, very few, like the Puritan Thomas Vincent, ministers who remained in London to minister to the sick, the dying, and the bereaved. But he stayed through the plague, and the Lord preserved him. But for all his pains, the archbishops and the king's compensation was no more than continued persecutions. In 1670, he was arrested again for preaching and confined this time to Bishopsgate Jail. Again did the Lord make the wrath of man to praise him, for he soon obtained permission to preach to the prisoners. What a great irony. This he did twice daily for the entirety of his detention. Providence then provided him a freedom of speech, in his confinement, that was prohibited to him in his liberty. At his arraignment in late June, all the charges were dropped again, and he was freed. But there was to be one more. 
one final affliction for that ancient and faithful servant of God. Who could say whether it might not have been the most bitter of them all. For it was the convergence of his persecution with that of Thomas alone. You see, in 1684, when Knowles was then 86 years old, he was imprisoned once more for a violation of the conventicle act for conducting an unauthorized religious assembly. It was, yes, the last gasp of an expiring ecclesiastical tyranny soon to pass from the scene. But for some, for Thomas DeLong, it was also a death grip. I said that Knowles was imprisoned. It was a place already mentioned and sadly familiar to both Knowles and to you. For it was again Newgate Prison. DeLon had been suffering there for at least five months when Knowles was dragged to his cell in that prison. There they lay in that place of wretchedness. DeLon watching his family and himself slowly perish. Whether Knowles ever saw DeLon or was permitted to see him is unknown. But it is reported that he was once again, that is Knowles was once again permitted the liberty to preach while in prison. Perhaps he did see DeLon. Perhaps he gave counsel and comfort as their family reduced to three, then to two, then to DeLon alone. Perhaps, perhaps he was the last to see DeLon and thus the first to mourn his death. Nothing is known of these things. No report is given. What we are told is that after 16 months of imprisonment, beginning in his 86th year, after 16 months, Knowles was released from Newgate Prison, which would have been approximately five months after DeLon had died in his cell. How unsearchable indeed are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Knowles lived another six years. From that time, he lived to see the glorious revolution and religious toleration enacted into law. He died in 1691 after a brief illness of only a few weeks. He was 93 years of age. As the hour drew near, 
he said to one that had come to visit him that he longed, quote, to be dissolved and to be with Christ. Not so much to be freed from pain and trouble as to be freed from sinning. Which he, it was reported, which he said with a more than ordinary transport of joy. Well, should you wish a fuller statement or perhaps more accurately statements of Mr. Knowles' faith and practice, you need look no further than those documents that we call the London Confessions of Faith. Knowles was one of only two, the other being William Kiffin, one of only two that put their signature to both of these confessions. In 1646, the revision of the first London Confession was issued. Knowles was a signatory. In 1689, when ministers of over a hundred congregations from London and the country gathered in London to discuss those things and issue the second London Confessions, Knowles was the first signature. He was then aged 91. His autobiographical sketch draws almost to its close with this reflection, his own, upon his years and his trials. My wilderness mercies, sea mercies, city mercies, and prison mercies afforded me very many and strong consolations. The spiritual sights of the glory of God, the divine sweetness of the spiritual and providential presence of my Lord Jesus Christ, and the joys and comforts of the Holy and Eternal Spirit communicated to my soul together with suitable and seasonable scriptures of truth, have so often and so powerfully revived, refreshed, and strengthened my heart in the days of my pilgrimage, trials, and sufferings, that the sense, yea, the life and sweetness thereof, abides still upon my heart, and hath engaged my soul to live by faith, to walk humbly, and to desire and endeavor to excel in holiness to God's glory and to the example of others. Then he said, though I confess many of the Lord's ministers and some of the Lord's people have excelled and outshined with whom God hath not been at so much cost nor pains, as he hath been with me. I am a very unprofitable servant, but yet, by grace, I am what I am.
that ancient and faithful servant of God. Hanser Knowles. That old Baptist, if not martyr, certainly sufferer for the truth of the principle, the distinctive that Christ church is to be composed only of living stones. The Baptist historian Joseph Ivamy aptly summarized Noel's life in these brief sentences. It ought to be recorded, it ought to be recorded to the honor of this apostolic man that he preferred a prison to any concession that would affect the interest of the church of Christ.